So we're in 1 Corinthians, ready for chapter 7, yay. Chapter 7 is kind of an interesting chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians is emerging to be kind of a, a book of higher laws. The Corinthians were living under uh, knowledge that they thought they possessed, and Paul told them that he was not able to communicate to them the deeper spiritual truths, the, the heavy stuff, the meat. But he was having to give them milk, a lot of just don't be that way, uh, live this way instead of that way, because they were still living in the flesh. They were still being fleshly because of the enmity and strife that was among them. In the first part, we saw how they had attached themselves to different people and how the, their focus on on factions and, and following certain teachers had created division in the church. And Paul told them that the higher law was the simple message of the cross. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we saw how that their focus on spirituality and the spiritual gifts that they had uh, had had created arrogance to the point where they didn't really care about sin in their midst anymore. And they didn't see that the sin of one individual, in fact, would affect the entire body. And that there's a law that supersedes the law of, of lawfulness. And that is the, the law of living as members of the body of Christ where we all care about each other. We all care about what's going on in, in each other's lives. And the law that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. So we live in service to him. And because we live in service to him, we live in service to each other in the body. In chapter 7, Paul continues to address some of the same problems. But there was a group, it seemed, in Corinth that taught. And we've already looked at how some of them, some of them said that it didn't really matter what you did in the body. All that mattered was your spiritual self and the, the, the teaching, the misconceptions that had come out of that. On the flip side, there were people who said that everything that you did in the, everything physical was, was bad or everything physical was not as important as your spiritual side. And so there were people who were, it seems, were teaching that it's better to uh, abstain from uh, eating certain things and it's better to abstain from from physical pleasure, from sexual relations, even inside of marriage, uh, that celibacy was was a higher ranking level of spirituality, and celibacy even inside of marriage uh, would make you more spiritual. And Paul set about to correct some of these wrong ideas that they had. Then in chapter 8, he goes on to address some of the same uh, twist in philosophy, uh, and that was their... their uh, their understanding of their tea and the fact that they weren't caring about how that affected the church. They were just living according to the law of, of their own liberty. And Paul shows them that there's a much higher law that they had not been taking into account. And that was the law of love. And that's kind of what he addresses throughout chapter 9 and 10 as well. In chapter 9, he uses his own uses examples of his own liberty, liberties that he would have had. And did not exercise because he cared about the gospel going out free of charge and in power. And because he cared about the well-being of other people in the church. Um, and then in chapter 10, he kind of winds down with, with showing them how that their spiritual knowledge and arrogance and being puffed up with what they knew 
um, had led them to a place where they didn't even realize their own vulnerability, susceptibility to, to idolatry um, and immorality. Uh, so we've got, we've got a lot to cover today. It's actually, I'm kind of jamming two um, sessions into one here. Uh, we're just going to kind of get a bird's eye view of chapter 7. Nothing more than that, really. And then we'll go into chapter 8, which is kind of the, the pivotal point of the rest. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, they all kind of tie together into one idea. And we'll look at that a little more closely. Chapter 7. Uh, Paul addresses the idea that it seems they wrote to him about the fact that some people were saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that uh, that was probably a euphemism for sexual relations. There were people who were teaching that it's better just to abstain from marriage, to abstain from sexual relations, even inside of marriage. And Paul addresses this and he says it's really pretty simple. Um, Yeah, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of temptations to sexual immorality, let each one have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband, let everyone get married because of temptations to sexual immorality. This might sound kind of um, uh, oversimplified, kind of just base, Uh, but you look at religions, cults that teach that abstinence from marriage and abstinence from sexuality inside of marriage is a higher level of spirituality and they're almost always marked by gross immorality um i know in in honduras the priests are forbidden to to be married the catholic be married and even among the catholics our our um friends who were catholics would joke about the fact that they call the priests fathers because they are in fact fathers they leave kids wherever they go um and Paul addresses, addresses this. He just points them back to the, the origin, the, the original design that God had created, affirming the good plan that God had of marriage and sexuality inside of marriage. And he says that uh, it's not about just living in pleasure in marriage, but it's in fact about giving yourself to your wife Wives, giving yourselves to your husband. You don't belong to yourself. So in fact, there's a a deep level of unselfishness that is required in a marriage relationship. To the unmarried and the widows, he said, by permission, not as a commandment from the Lord, that he thinks it would be better if they would just remain unmarried. That there are, in fact, benefits to remaining unmarried. And I used to think that was a pretty cool uh, passage before I got married. <laughs> there are, in fact, benefits to being celibate, to being married. Um, you have a lot more liberty to travel, to be involved in ministry without the extra cares of caring for a wife and a family. And Paul kind of lays some of that out. But he says there's something that supersedes that. And that is your calling. What has God called you to? Has he called you to serve him single or has he called you to serve him married? In fact, he says, if it's if you can't keep your sexual desires under control and live with a single heart to God, it's better for you just to go ahead and get married. Paul, um, he he tells them, I think it's better for you to remain as I am, inferring that he was single. 
Uh, he probably had been married sometimes, so we can give him credit for at least knowing that, uh, you know, not being just this single free ranger who kind of scoffed at marriage. Um, Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, and to be part of the Sanhedrin, we know for a fact that he would have had to have been married. We don't know what the case was, whether his wife died. He may have been a widow, um, or his wife may have left him when he became a Christian. Um, either way, we don't know. Either way, he affirmed uh, that, that the celibate calling that God had on his life was good, and that there were specific advantages to it. But he said that it's better to marry than to burn passion. So if you think you have a celibate calling, but you're not living uh, fulfilled and with a single heart for God, go ahead and get married. Kind of simple and straightforward. To the married, he also gave instructions. Now, this was not just his opinion, but this was reaffirming the teachings of Jesus. And he says it very clearly that the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Divorce is not God's will. If for some reason divorce is inevitable, say an unbelieving spouse leaves his partner or her partner, um, then the options are, Paul lays it out clearly, it's either permanent singlehood or reconciliation, coming back together with your spouse. To those who are married to unbelievers, and there would have been a lot of cases like this in Corinth since there was a, a mixture of, of Greek and Roman religion and people were being called out of that into Christianity. So there would have been believers who were still married to an unbelieving spouse. And to them, he says, don't instigate divorce. If your partner's willing to live with you, there may have been people who said, well, it's not good to stay with an unbelieving partner because that partner will somehow make you children will be unholy because you have an unbelieving spouse. Paul says that's not the case. You won't be contaminated by living with an unbelieving spouse and your children will be made holy with one believing parent. God has called you to peace. You don't know whether continuing in a relationship with your unbelieving spouse might lead them to salvation. So, Kind of the, the, the whole chapter 7 revolves around the idea that each one has a calling from God, a specific calling from God, and we are best off when we embrace that calling and live in that calling. Um, he ends with instructions for uh, living life as though it were temporary. Because guess what? It is. It's temporary. And uh, the focus on whether to marry or whether it was better to not marry and live celibate, that was kind of a distraction from what they were really supposed to be focusing on. That was the fact that the time was short. And that you live in some regards as though they were single with a focus on God and His kingdom. And those who mourn should live with a focus on God and His kingdom as though they were not mourning. And those who had dealings with the world needed to live as though they didn't have dealings with the world because their focus should be on God and his kingdom. <clears throat> so we're going to just kind of skip down to chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to read the first few verses there. Chapter 8. 
He shifts to another question here. Paul says, now concerning food offers to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So it, just a little bit of context, and I know we talked about this previously. Corinth was a very, very idolatrous city in that they had their religion of idolatry, but idolatry was mixed in with, with all of life's activities. Businesses often had meetings in, in the temple. Uh, the marketplace was kind of one big complex with the temple. And it was really hard for those who were Christians to avoid interactions with, with the forms of idolatry that, that were present in so many aspects of life. Idol worship by nature requires sacrifices made to the idols. And, and so part of the sacrifice was, was burned up. And in Greek culture, oftentimes it was the less desirable parts that were burned up as an offering to the idol. And the rest could either be eaten or sold at the marketplace. Your friend who was an idol worshiper uh, might invite you over to his house and serve you a meal. And the, the meat that he, that he gives you to eat, guess what had happened to it before he served it to you? It was probably offered to an idol. Your business or club that you were a part of, whatever it was, might have a banquet and they meet in the temple or the temple area. And there's ritual sacrifices that are made and everybody knows what's going on. And then everybody is served the, the food that's left over. And what are you going to do? Do you eat the meat that was sacrificed to an idol or don't you? These are actually tough questions in some regards. But the Corinthians had this, this idea that, that they possessed knowledge them at liberty. And I think Paul is quoting to them here what they said. Is that we all possess knowledge. And he says, of course, we, um, and, and he, he does this frequently through 1 Corinthians. It's one of many phrases that were commonly used in Corinth that Paul agreed with, but he said, you're not actually understanding them correctly, or, or there are aspects of this truth that, that need to be set right in your minds and in the, that you're living. And a few of those were in chapter 6, he said, um, all things are lawful to me. That was one saying that the Corinthians probably had. Uh, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But they were misusing that idea. In chapter 7, it was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man to, to stay single, to be celibate. And in chapter 10, they were saying, all things are lawful to me. And this is something that, that um, he said several times through First Corinthians. All shows them that there is a higher law that they were to live under that they had been neglecting. He says, if this higher knowledge that you have, if this knowledge that you imagine you possess does not lead to love, if it doesn't produce love, you in fact don't know anything of true value. And I think this was kind of a, a maybe a smack in the face to the Corinthians because they had so much, uh, so much pride in their spiritual knowledge and the liberty that they possessed because of the knowledge they had that they were neglecting to love each other and build up the body. And Paul is basically telling them humility, love, meekness, care for each other, being concerned about each other's well-being. That's a, 
that's a higher form of knowledge. That's what you really need to know. And if you're imagining that you know things that are giving you liberty, that tread on other people's spiritual well-being, you don't know anything yet as you ought to know. It's a very interesting twist here. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But, and he doesn't say, if anyone knows as he ought to know. He says, but if anyone loves God. That's on the flip side. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone, he is known by God. And it's unfortunate that English doesn't have a different word for knowing as in knowing relationally versus having knowledge in your head. But there are two different words uh, in, in the original text. If someone thinks that he knows something, he has knowledge in his head that's giving him these spiritual liberties, he doesn't yet know anything as he ought to know. But if he loves God, he is known by God. He is in a relationship with God. And that relationship with God, God knowing you, knowing the, the intentions of your heart that are behind what you're doing, that is what produces love for other people. And that love builds up. They were saying, an idol has no real existence. And Paul agreed with him. He said, in fact, he went to great lengths to say, there be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's affirming their, their statement that, that an idol has no real existence. He's saying, however, not all people have this knowledge. So you guys are going to the marketplace or to the temple or to um, your friend's banquet. And you're taking the meat that he offered to an idol and you're eating it with, with a clean conscience. Because you're saying, an idol isn't anything to me. It's just a block of wood he offered it to. I don't really, uh, it, it's nothing to me. And there was someone else who had spent his entire lifetime worshiping that block of wood and bringing sacrifices to it, who saw the liberty that someone else was exercising and who was caused to sin because he couldn't do the same thing with a clean conscience. And so they were disregarding the impact that their own liberty, the exercise of their liberty had on their brother. There's a lot of true statements that we can make or truths that we can know and live from that are not necessarily the entirety of truth. That's what he's telling them. You need to look for the higher law that's going to take beyond the true statements like, like I answer to God alone. That's a true statement. You, you're ultimately going to answer to God. Or it's the heart is all that matters. That's actually true. The heart is really what matters. But these truth, these true statements are often used in a distorted sort of way for us to exercise our own liberty. Maybe it's, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. You might very well have liberty in your conscience to exercise that you possess rightfully. But don't disregard what that might do to your brother. You might have the freedom to, to drink a glass of wine. But somebody else that you're with at the moment might not have that freedom. And if they watch you exercise your freedom 
and it caused them to sin, then you are sinning against your brother for whom Christ died. Just a practical example of that in uh, where we lived in Honduras, up in Carrizal, there was, uh, they said approximately 60% of the men there were chronic alcoholics. A lot of them became alcoholics when they were 10 or 11 years old. Um, they would take their, their brewed uh, drinks out to the field as they worked, and they would become addicted to alcohol, very, very severely so. In fact, it was a huge stumbling block to a lot of people, even after they became a Christian. Um, there, was, there was a man in, in town, Armando was his name, um, that we watched his personal struggle with that as he tried to live for God and then was pulled back into his old life by temptation of alcohol and just fell back into alcoholism. And it's tragic to watch that. And for me to sit down like that and to exercise my liberty to drink alcohol would be sin against him. That's what Paul's saying. It becomes practical. It becomes practical in the things that we do, in the, even in the little decisions we make. Maybe you have liberty to watch a movie that you can handle. It doesn't bother you. But you go with someone else and you exercise that liberty and it becomes a stumbling block to them. You might not even be aware of it, but you need to watch for those things that have a negative impact on someone that you're with when you might very well have the liberty to do that. Paul's saying there's a higher law than the law of knowledge than the law of all things are lawful and the key is to recognize that jesus died for your brother jesus actually gave up his life for your brother's well-being and so how can you disregard his spiritual well-being just to exercise your liberty And in sinning against your brother's weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. That's what he told. They didn't understand that the body, in fact, was the body of Christ. We get so used to that term, the body of Christ, that we don't think of what it means. It means that the people sitting right here in this room, this is the body of Jesus. It's Jesus' body. And so when you sin against Someone in the body, you are sinning against Christ. One clarification. Uh, I think we've probably all seen this used, abused, this idea that, that we need to regard our, our brother's weak conscience with respect. We've often seen it abused by people who, who use it as a tool through which they can subject others to the claim of their weak conscience through this. Don't use it to bring other people under your control, under the control of your weak conscience. That's not what it's for. It's a law whereby we can lay down our preferences for others. Does that make sense? Because you can easily have someone who's like, well... I have a conviction against that, and so I want everybody to live by that. And it can become a devious form of control. And that's not what this passage was intended for. It was intended to be a law by which we all, under which we all live for the good of each other. So in chapter 9, Paul then goes into a list of the rights that he had in his personal life, and as an apostle... He lists them. He had the right to authority 
as an apostle, he had seen Jesus and he had fruit of his apostleship. People had come to Christ through his work. He had the right to eat and drink. And I think he was saying more than just to eat and drink. He was saying he had liberties in how he ate and drank and what he ate and drank. He had liberty to to have a wife. The apostles had liberty to have contrast to what the Corinthians were teaching. They had the liberty to refrain from working for a living since they were dedicated to ministry, the ministry of the gospel. And he uses the example of the Old Testament teaching where the Old Testament law, actually, where God said that when they had an ox, when they hitched up an ox and had him tread out the grain, there were some people who would muzzle the ox, put something over their mouth so they wouldn't uh, stop and you know, eat some of the grain as they were treading out. The, the, they were threshing the wheat. And God gave them the law. He's saying the ox actually deserves to get to eat some of the wheat he's threshing out. And Paul says, Did you, do you really think that's just about oxen? It's not. I think it was Martin Luther that said it's obviously not just about oxen because oxen can't read. He's saying there's a, there's a higher principle here that someone who is dedicated to the work of the gospel should also be able to receive physical benefits from those that they're ministering to. So if someone is ministering to your spiritual needs, then they can rightfully receive from you physical benefits. And he goes into great lengths to show how this is actually could benefit rightfully from the people that they were ministering to. But he says, I laid down all those rights and I didn't exercise them. Because I wanted to make myself a servant to the people that I was ministering to. And I wanted the gospel to be free of charge. So what's the higher law here? It's the law of servanthood, the law of serving others. So you might have all these liberties that you think you can rightfully exercise, but there's a higher law. And Paul says, I want you to see in my own life, I've not been living based on the liberties that I have. I've not been exercising those liberties because my chief desire is to be of service to others. For the gospel to be made available Free of charge. People shouldn't have to pay a penny to hear the gospel. And he also says, I didn't want anybody to be able to to rob me of of glorying in this. And the fact that I'm laying my life down in service. And I'm not receiving physical benefits for it. Because that's how I want it to be. I want my life to be a sacrifice for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And he says that I'm disciplining my body. I am exercising self-control and self-discipline so that while I'm teaching others about the gospel, short myself of obtaining the prize. He didn't place himself above that possibility. He said, I have to watch out how I live my life. I have to live with self-discipline and self-control so that I don't fall short of winning the prize. And he uses the, the example of how people run and how they exercise and they train for run so that they can receive the reward for how they ran. And he's saying, I'm doing the same thing. And that leads into chapter 10. 
the Corinthians had so much confidence in their spirituality, they had been blinded by their, to their vulnerability to idolatry and sexual immorality by their spirituality. They had been blinded to their vulnerability by their own spirituality. And Paul now uses the, the Israelites as an example for them. He says they were all, the people that came out of Egypt, they were all baptized under the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. God was giving them manna. God was doing miraculous things, providing for them. They all drink. God miraculously provided water for them. It says they, they all drank from the, the spiritual rock that followed them. But with most of these, God was displeased. In spite of the fact that they were God's chosen people, they had been called out of Egypt and God was miraculously providing for them food and drink and they were taking pride in their spirituality. With most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And he says, now their downfall was an example to us. It happened for an example to us and it was written for our to, to teach us to just how to live, to teach us how to be careful of our own of, of our own lives, so that we would not fall into the same traps. After they had seen the miraculous things that God did, and Moses went up onto the mountain and was meeting with God, and, and he took a little too long in his meeting with God, they turned back to their tendency toward idolatry and entertainment. They had Aaron create a golden calf for them to worship. And it says they play. And he uses the example of their sexual immorality. There was sexual immorality in their midst. And 23,000 of them died in a single day. I think UNC Charlotte has like 24,000 undergrad students. Can you imagine if God would wipe out 24,000 students? at UNC Charlotte in one day because of sexual immorality? Do you think that would get people's attention? He's saying this didn't just happen for them. It happened for our, our sake as well. These things were written down for an example to us. But you think that you're so spiritual that, that you're above all of this. He's saying you have to watch out. You have to watch out that you don't fall into idolatry, entertainment, self-service, self-worship, immorality. And because of their unbelief and their grumbling, they were destroyed by serpents. And he's saying, Corinthians, you guys think that you're above all this because of the knowledge that you have, but you're not. These things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, flee from idolatry. And he tells them that if anyone thinks he stands, take heed. Because if you think that you're standing in your liberty and in your spirituality and because God is demonstrating uh, the, the spiritual gifts, the, the gifts of the spirit through you and you are a spiritual church and you have all this knowledge, you think you stand on all of this. But it's in that thinking that you stand that you may very well fall. Like the Israelites, we've all been partakers of the spiritual blessings through Christ. But because we are partakers of the table of Christ, we should watch out 
so that we don't become partakers of the table of demons. And I think he's saying this in particular to the people who were exercising their freedom. He says, in fact, those idols that the heathen around you are worshiping or that you're, you're laughing about someone being concerned about what was offered to an idol. He said, in fact, they're not just offering their, their food to idol. They're offering it to demons. And you can't be participants in the Lord's table and the table of demons. In the same way Paul admonished the, the church, um, the, the Galatian church, he said, do not, you, you have been called to liberty, do not use this liberty as an occasion to the flesh. But what's the opposite of that? But, but by love, serve one another. Isn't that interesting? That the opposite of using your liberty as an occasion to the flesh is not... Just be very self-disciplined and hard on yourself. No, it's actually, there's a higher law. It's a law of service. Look out for ways that you can help other people grow spiritually. Because that's, that's, the, uh, that's the opposite of using your liberty as an occasion for indulging in your fleshly desires. By love, serve one another. Think about it. This week, how can I help someone else grow spiritually? How can I help them walk with God? How can I nurture their love for Jesus, how can I live in such a way that my life will inspire other people to, to a closer relationship with Jesus? That should be the law that's driving us rather than the law of knowledge of where I have liberty. All things are lawful, he says again, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And I think that's applicable to us, just as well as to the Corinthian church, because we can so easily fall into what's good for me. I enjoy living my Christian life with my liberties rather than what's good for other people. What's good for the body of Christ? How's how's how can God use the way I'm living today or this this week to build other people up and to serve the body of Christ? And he kind of ties it all together with a recap of two higher laws. One is whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Everything that you do should be with the focus of how does this bring God glory? Not, not just where do I have liberty or what, what can I do that I enjoy doing, but how does this glorify God? Whether you eat or drink, every, even the, the, just the common things that you're doing through your daily life, how does this bring glory to God? And secondly, imitate me in what I do. Strive to please men. Strive to please others so that they will be saved. So how does that look for us this week? How can we live in such a way that we are bringing glory to God with what we're doing, that we're making that our primary focus in the decisions we make, and that we're looking out for each other, for the good of other people. How can we cause other people to grow in their relationship with Christ? How can we nurture their desire for the things of God?